0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the unavoidable observation that Donald Trump appears to have the Republican presidential nomination wrapped up and that the growing number of indictments and criminal trials he'll be facing only seem to strengthen the MAGA movement and boost his chances to be elected the next president of the United States. Joining us to discuss the best chance of beating Trump by forming a coalition of Democrats and traditional Republicans is Miles Taylor, a national security expert who works in Washington, D.C. He served as the chief of staff for Kirsten Nielsen, the former secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, in the Trump administration, where he published an anonymous essay in the New York Times blowing the whistle on presidential misconduct. He later published the number one national bestseller, A Warning, revealing himself to be the author and launched a campaign of ex-officials, the Renew American Movement, to oppose Donald Trump's re election. And his new book just out is Blowback, A Warning to Save Democracy from the Next Trump. Then we'll look into how to solve the two most vexing problems undermining American democracy, the electoral college and gerrymandering, and speak with Danielle Allen, the James Bryant Conant, University Professor at Harvard University, and the Director of the Allen Lab for Democracy Renovation at Harvard's Kennedy School's Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation. A professor of political philosophy, ethics, and public policy, she's also a seasoned nonprofit leader, democracy advocate, a tech ethicist, distinguished author, and mum. We will discuss her article at the Washington Post Our Democracy is Menaced by Two Dragons. Here's how to slay them. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations large and small at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation publictruthmedia.org enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, Background Briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant and joining us now is Miles Taylor, the national security expert who served as a chief of staff for Kirsten Nielsen, the former secretary of the Department of Homeland Security in the Trump administration, where he published an anonymous essay in the New York Times, Blowing the Whistle on Presidential Misconduct. He later published the number one national bestseller, A Warning, revealed himself to be the author, and launched a campaign of ex-officials, the Renew America movement, to oppose Donald Trump's re-election. His new book, just out is blowback a warning to save democracy from the next trump welcome to background briefing miles taylor
1: ian it's great to be with you as always
0: so thanks for joining us miles and unfortunately it looks as if the next trump will be trump himself right what's your sense that he's all but got the uh, republican presidential nominated nomination wrapped up
1: well, it, it really seems to me that that's the likeliest outcome. And, you know, my Democratic friends don't like to hear it because they hope, as they've been hoping for many years, that something will get him, whether it's a Republican opponent within the party or the people around him holding him accountable or the justice system holding him accountable or the Congress with impeachments. Uh, but none of those things have seemed to stick. And at this point, he certainly is the odds-on favorite to be the GOP nominee. But what I'm more worried about and what I try to detail in the book Blowback is what will happen if we actually elect him to the presidency again. And it's a pretty grim portrait. And I think that possibility is vastly more likely than people realize, because there's a lot of ways, even if uh, he you know, has two more indictments potentially in the offing, uh, a lot of ways he can evade justice and still win the presidency despite those looming uh, threats in the justice system.
0: Well, him and his team working with him have laid out their agenda for uh, for a second uh, Trump presidency, and the New York Times just uh, published it recently, and it's absolutely alarming that this is uh, an unabashed fascist regime that wants to take uh, executive control of the IRS and all the government departments, uh, and most importantly, of course, the Department of Justice, to use the government to, to punish his enemies and silence his critics, uh, take over the press, which he's always referred to as the enemy of the people. I mean, this is just a blueprint. Uh, that, you know, without getting into comparisons with Mussolini and Hitler, it's just so. Damn obvious what this is all about, and that's where I find it so puzzling, Miles. And I'd like to get your opinion: Why are the American people so passive in the face of an unabashed and unapologetic threat to American democracy itself?
1: Well, I think at the at the core of it, Ian, there is a sense of denial that something like that happens overseas and foreign dictatorships. But it can't possibly happen here. It can't happen in the United States. And frankly, that sense of denial is how Donald Trump was able to rise in the first place. It's how he was able to win the GOP nomination, even though the majority of the party uh, leadership was opposed to him. It's how uh, we you know, ended up with him as president. And people continued to be in denial, thinking that Donald Trump was an aberration. That's myself included, by the way, I uh, was probably one of the leading progenitors of the thesis that Donald Trump would eventually go away and an axis of adults could keep him in check. And we were wrong because the populist movement that he stands atop of is much, much bigger than people realized. And I'm glad you pointed to that reporting this week from The New York Times. Maggie Haberman and Jonathan Swan have a spectacular article documenting how In a second term, Trump and his allies intend to further weaponize the power of the government. If you think of that article as the tip of the iceberg, what I've done with this book blowback is go below the waterline and draw that entire iceberg for you and try to show you department by department and democratic guardrail by guardrail how they will engage in the weaponization of the government and, again, the dismantlement of those institutions. And it's a pretty disturbing picture. I mean, I want to say one thing, Ian. You just noted a little bit of caution about making a comparison to dictatorships through history. But I've got to say, given what we've heard out of the former president's mouth, it does sound like a second term equals the Third Reich. There are so many parallels between Nazi Germany and a statement like that would have been unimaginably reckless a few years ago. But just based on the facts, it's now a sober-minded, fact-driven forecast. And when Trump's own loyalists tell me what he and the MAGA movement are planning, uh, there's no other parallel I can come to other than paralleling dictatorships that we've seen throughout history.
0: Well, of course, Hitler and his cohorts were a bunch of thugs. And there's no question that Trump has more than a fascination for mob bosses. And when the deadline a couple of days ago for him to show up before Jack Smith's D.C. grand jury, he posted something that was literally in in his language of a mob boss. And it was an absolute incitement to his crowd to defend him. And as your book points out, a second term with his MAGA legions behind him, Trump 2.0 will be a revenge machine, right? And he's made it pretty clear. He's, he's already said on a, a number of occasions that he wants retribution. So, mm-hmm. again, mm-hmm. it's staring us in the face.
1: Well, let me give you some examples, Ian, from the conversations I had and The reason I wanted to speak to so many other Republicans, especially those in Donald Trump's orbit for this book, is to try to tell tell the story from their perspective and not just mine as someone who's been horrified by what he's seen from inside the Trump administration, but straight from their mouths, what would be planned for a second term? And I'll just give you a sampling. I mean, people who were Trump's top lieutenants told me in a next go around, there will be plans to use the powers of the intelligence agencies to spy on rivals, to use the powers of the Justice Department to prosecute political opponents, to administer loyalty tests internally to civil servants in the U.S. government to make sure that they politically salute the MAGA movement, to gerrymander the federal courts in their favor to deploy federal security forces, especially in democratic cities, to try to exert control, to withhold emergency aid to quote-unquote uncooperative localities, to purge deep state operatives that they say are in law enforcement and intelligence, and to heavily regulate the media. I mean, you can't listen to a series of plans like that and not think it sounds uh, frighteningly authoritarian in nature, and this is not a B movie plot. These are the actual people who are developing these plans as we speak, and not just for Donald Trump, but for any number of MAGA candidates that could potentially win the GOP presidential nomination.
0: So, what we're effectively left with here then is that are the Democrats, who quite often can't get out of their own way, uh, And in fact, they're going to be sabotaged, the Democrats, you know, and Cornel West won't peel off too many votes, probably even less than Jill Stein did. But this no labels movement could prove to be very, very damaging to the Democrats. And they're they're getting on the ballot in a number of important swing states. They've started with Arizona, and they'll get Wisconsin and others. And Uh that could prove to be very difficult for them. So... The, the The only chance to beat Trump then would be a coalition of the Democrats and disaffected republicans right is that well is that you, who you're you, aiming the book at? Is that w- what you're trying to organize
1: Ian you've absolutely pointed to what I think is the only pathway to firewall our democracy against the potential of a hyper populist and retributive presidency which would be trump 2.0 and that's what i call coalition campaigning it is a coalition of democrats and concerned republicans who are really the only uh, way to stop him and it's what actually happened in 2020 if you parse the data you find that in the key swing states that joe biden won it was largely because disaffected republicans for the first time many of them in their lives Switched their vote. They had voted for Trump in 2016, and tens of thousands of them voted for Joe Biden in 2020. And that margin, those several tens of thousands of Republicans who sided with Biden were just enough to swing those states for Joe Biden. For me, that's way too close for comfort. And at a minimum, that coalition has to be kept together in another go-around. But more importantly, that coalition has to grow to give us a little bit of comfort in the numbers that we won't end up with another Trump, I think that's going to be very hard to do. And that's certainly what this book blowback is directed at is messaging to those concerned conservatives who know we need to move on from Donald Trump, that it's going to be a lot worse than even they think and that it's important for them to do that coalition. Now, you mentioned no labels. And I will say, I do know a lot of the people that work for the organization. And It may surprise you to hear me say there are actually, I think, a lot of well-meaning people over there who do not want to see another Donald Trump presidency. However, the strategy that they're undertaking right now could very well put Donald Trump back into the White House. And so I have urged them in private and in public to be exceptionally cautious about what they do next. And my exhortation to them today is that I hope before they undertake a third-party ballot line that they go sit down and meet with Joe Biden. They meet with the vice president, Kamala Harris, and they talk to the White House about instead potentially banding together to go against Donald Trump, forming a unity coalition instead of breaking off and creating a spoiler movement. I'm not super optimistic that will happen, Ian, but I really, really urge the No Labels team to have that conversation first before they leave our democracy's fate to a coin toss.
0: There's another problem that I see, Miles, and arguably you could divide society into those that deserve attention and those that demand attention, and the latter category being terrorists and Donald Trump. And one of the problems that we have is that the press are continually manipulated by Trump because of his outrageous behavior, and all the attention goes on him. And of course... That's his strategy because he doesn't have a he doesn't have a a, a program. It's all about him, not about you know, make America great again. It's make Trump rich again, and the MAGA people all they have is culture wars. They don't do do any legislative stuff. They just you know make noise and Mm -hmm. if you all you have to do is watch Jim Jordan's clown show to see that. So this is I think what's happening to the detriment of Biden. Because if you go back to James Carville's adage during the Clinton administration, it's the economy, stupid. Mm -hmm. Well, most presidential candidates in modern history would love to have the economy that Joe Biden has now, but people are not feeling good. It's because I think it's, and again, I think it's the press's problem. I think the press is focusing so much On Trump, and they gave him $5 billion worth of free advertising in 2016, and they're doing the same now, and they can't let him go, and he continually manipulates them, and all the attention goes to this guy. And that's what Bill Barr said recently about him. He said he's like a nine-year-old child who just does outrageous things to get attention. And is that a mechanism that has to be broken in order to Get the people to focus on what's really happening with the economy and with our politics, as opposed to being whipsawed by this sick man who demands attention.
1: Well, I think we can take our example here from what we've seen in other democracies where there's been what we would call democratic backsliding, where the people become more open to a strong man. Pseudo authoritarian leader. And what you tend to see throughout history is in periods of instability and uncertainty, the masses tend to gravitate towards someone who promises them security above all else, who talks tough and who demonizes existing elites. And what concerns me at the moment is not just. Uh, The recent economic volatility we went through, uh, now the economy is coming along quite good, but is actually what the American people see in front of them. And there's a lot of fear about the age of AI that we're walking into. I mean, you have reports like we just had the other day. I think it was from Goldman Sachs uh, that said that forecast in the next two years, we could see something up to 20% workforce displacement from AI and automation replacing jobs. People like Donald Trump are exploiting that fear that middle class Americans have about what's to come and the concern that they're walking on thin ice economically, even if right now the job market is booming and they're they're preying on those fears. And again, this is how we see authoritarian movements go from the impossible to almost the inevitable, is that you have people who really effectively prey on those fears. And I think that's Something Donald Trump has done. He's whipped up the country into a populist fervor. And it's why I actually think he has a greater likelihood of retaking the presidency now than he even did in 2016, when the odds makers only gave him a 9% chance. And it's sort of baffling to think that. Now, what can the Democrats do about it? Well, you know, I think there's got to be a lot of people recognizing. That the presidential race starts now and I haven't seen enough of Joe Biden's surrogates out there explaining the danger of the populist forces on the other side and forcefully making the case for a coalition in our politics, not just for Joe Biden. They really need to be actively recruiting concerned conservatives like Liz Cheney over to their cause. And I'm just going to throw this out there, Ian. You know, if Joe Biden said, I want Liz Cheney to be in my next administration as secretary of commerce, that would be the type of gesture that would show there could be a unity government uh, to take out the MAGA side. I haven't seen anything like that yet, but we need political Hail Marys to be thrown down the football field if we're going to counter what we're seeing on the far right.
0: So let's talk about the your Renew America movement and the extent to which people that served with you in the Trump White House have gone public. And you, of course, were the first with Anonymous in the New York Times and with your book, A Warning, and others have been a little reluctant. You know, Jim Mattis, you point out in your book believes in the duty of silence, even though privately he says to you and everybody else what a catastrophe Trump is and that he's attacking the very fabric of uh, American democracy. And there are a number of quotes now from from the f- second chief of staff, General Kelly, that are unbelievably alarming, and, and we could talk about some of them. But there are people like Kellyanne Conway that have never, that in private, have just said what an appalling person Trump is, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Paul Ryan, they all know it. So is there any way, and I know you're trying to in a way, to organize a, a kind of group of people that actually know Trump and work with him and were in the Oval Office and saw his behavior, they saw what a catastrophe was, what a thoroughly inadequate and outrageously incompetent uh, leader he was and how they spent all their time, as you did and others, trying to mitigate the catastrophe that his impulses, many of which were cruel and sadistic, uh, would have had, had they passed. I mean, some of the stuff that General Kelly says about Trump wanting to shoot pregnant Mexican women in the legs to tear them from crossing the border, from putting razor sharp things on the top of his wall to cut their hands, and he describes in great detail how the Mexicans would be injured. I mean, this is—I think this information has to get out because something's got to prick the bubble.
1: Well, you, you catch me at an interesting moment on this, Ian, and I'll—I'll I'll just tell you kind of behind the scenes what I've been working on, which is you know outside of my day job, which is in technology policy and nonpartisan uh, sort of work related to the, the future of, of technology. Um, in my private time, I've been trying to bring together more of these ex-Trump officials to speak out publicly about their concerns regarding Trump 2.0. And last year, we actually did a number of phone calls, several dozen former Trump officials to talk about what we might be able to do as a group to prevent him from winning the nomination or at a bare minimum, prevent him from retaking the White House. Now, you know, I don't have any announcements to make today about about what that cohort might do. But the the fact that the conversations are happening uh, is important. And we need those conversations to accelerate, because I think that that group can be effective in messaging to that slim slim sliver of those conservatives that I mentioned who really just want to move on from Trump, but they need air cover. They're scared to come out publicly and break from the tribe since the tribe is dominated by MAGA. And so what they need is what we call in the political world, permission structures, people and ideas that give them the comfort to come out on their own and say publicly, yeah, I'm still a Republican, but I don't like this part of the tribe. I consider myself to be a part of this more rational, moderate faction. And unfortunately, Trump and his allies have done a very good job of silencing those people and intimidating them politically. We've got to lower that price of dissent. And one of the ways that we can do it is having these rock ribbed conservatives who defected from Trump world come out and speak in unison and, in, and regularly out in public about their concerns and the need for the GOP to move on beyond Trumpism. So I hope to have more to say about that in the coming weeks and months, but um, I'm very eager for that cohort to to band together.
0: But Miles, even uh, Bill Barr, who's done some really biting criticism of Trump, and much of it has been, as I say, that his recent uh, description of Trump likening to a nine-year-old boy I thought was <laughs> so similar to what you have told me about what it's like yeah. being in the Oval Office with this crazy, out of control, incompetent. At the end of the day, though, he's always said that if and this is a question that's, that the press always asks Trump's critics from the insiders that serve with him, that will will you if he becomes becomes a nominee nominee, will you vote for him? And that even includes Mitch McConnell, as we know, can't stand Trump and wishes he wishes he would go away. So they all say that at the end of the day, they would vote for him if he were the nominee. So how do you break that spell? How do you find a comfort for these uh, traditional Republicans to vote against the Republican nominee for president?
1: Well, you know, Bill Barr's comments, uh, they really upset me. and, and, And I'm not totally convinced that he wouldn't you know, support an alternative or, you know, write in the name of his uncle or, or do something along those lines. But it just goes to show you how strong the tribalism is. And, and I'll give you an example from the book is, you know, last year, Adam Kinzinger and I, the former congressman, were on a retreat in South Carolina. And I put this question to him and I said, Adam, you know, you and I have this discussion with so many friends about how Republicans who know better, tell us in private how fearful they are about the return of Donald Trump or someone worse. But then in public, they continue to align with the MAGA movement. Why is that? Is it that they're afraid of the death threats like we've been getting? Are they afraid of getting attacked and and their personal safety? That's got to be it. And Adam responded and he said, you know, I think that's part of it, but there's something they're more afraid of. And my response to Adam was, there's something they're more afraid of than death or the, the, the physical threats to their families? And he said, yes, they're more afraid of getting kicked out of the tribe than they are of death because the tribe means everything to them. They've built their careers and brands and lives around it. And the idea of being tribeless is scarier to them than the physical threats. And I think that that's true. And I've said a couple of times, I've pointed to a joke that comedian Jerry Seinfeld used to make that gets at this underlying issue. And he used to take to the stage and say, you know, studies show that a, Americans' top fears, their number one fear is public speaking and their number two fear is death. So they'd rather be in the casket than delivering the eulogy. Mm-hmm. And Jerry Seinfeld gets a good laugh line there, but it points to a reality in our society today, which is that speaking out has become so terrifying to people that they would rather be dead than be caught speaking out and ostracized and alienated. So the way to get around this is we have to create a tribe of the tribeless, if you will, and make it much, much easier for folks to dissent. And if we don't do that, then I'm afraid we are zombie walking off the Democratic cliff and back into an administration of the next Trump.
0: But Miles, when you say f- facing death, well, Mike Pence was facing death. Trump literally sicked the mob onto him, and uh, they were chanting, hang Mike Pence, and they built a gallow. And he, to this day, Mike Pence won't, won't really go against the guy that tried to kill him, which I find absolutely astounding and all of the house members and all the senators remember they were terrified that day and what's happening okay. now is that the same kind of irresponsible riling up and inciting the mob to protect him in january the 6th it was to is to stop the certification it was a coup attempt but what he's hinting at now is that he's, he's attacking law enforcement he's attacking the fbi he's attacking mm-hmm. the doj something nasty could happen in the next few months or throughout this election cycle, I find it almost impossible to believe that that there won't be some violence incited by Trump. Could that break the mold? Could that get people, so far it hasn't gotten uh, Mike Pence to to man up, but is it possible that something terrible could happen and that might change the equation and allow these people to feel it's their patriotic duty to stop Trump?
1: The example of Mike Pence, I think, is the most vivid illustration of what Adam Kinzinger was saying—that even when faced with death, that wasn't enough to get him to turn uh, forcefully against Trump in public. He has still tried to stay in the tribe and cater to the tribe, and he's been reluctant to criticize Trump too much. And uh, you know that that doesn't really bode well. And I do worry about Trump's attacks on law enforcement and the FBI. He's taken the Republican Party from a position of back the blue and stand with law enforcement to sack the blue. He wants to systematically purge the ranks of law enforcement of people that he calls deep state operatives. What he really means is he wants to administer a loyalty test to people in law enforcement to make sure that people who are serving in those positions and wear the badge have a political priority which is to support Donald Trump and the MAGA movement that's really scary stuff that is again what we see in dictatorships is when an individual wants to take the domestic security forces and make them operate as a political entity rather than an impartial entity that protects the people and that's what makes this period we're in doubly scary because i do think the conditions are favorable for violence given how the former president continues to incite his supporters and at the same time were he to take power there is clearly expressed intent to then use those security forces to intimidate the political opposition which creates a very volatile a very volatile climate but but forget you know Trump taking for office before that in this primary period in this presidential election period There is a lot a lot of potential for disorder, namely because we have seen what happens when Donald Trump loses. And were he to lose the nomination, were he to lose the election, we now know from recent history he does not go easily. He does not know. He does not go quietly. And this week he released a very menacing message threatening to do terrible things to the people who would try to stop him. Uh, I actually think right now the potential threat over the next two years is greater than we saw in the lead up to January 6th and in the post-election period, because we have seen statistically higher levels of radicalization in the GOP base and more chatter about using violence uh, against the government and against the political opposition. So it's a very difficult moment. And the people who I talk to in federal law enforcement are are on edge right now.
0: Well, Miles Taylor, I thank you so much for joining us here today.
1: Ian Masters, always great to be with you. You're a patriot. Thank you.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Miles Taylor, a national security expert who serves as chief of staff for Kirsten Nielsen, the former secretary of the Department of Homeland Security in the Trump administration, where he published an anonymous essay in The New York Times, Blowing the Whistle on Presidential Misconduct. He later published the number one national bestseller, A Warning, and revealed himself to be the author and launched a campaign of ex-officials, The Renew America Movement, to oppose Donald Trump's re-election. His new book just out is Blowback, a warning to save democracy from the next Trump. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with a solution to the two most vexing problems undermining American democracy, the Electoral College and gerrymandering. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available twenty-four-seven at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Danielle Allen, who is the James Bright Conant University Professor at Harvard University and the director of the Allen Lab for Democracy Renovation at Harvard Kennedy School's Ash Center for De- Democratic Governance and Innovation. A professor of political philosophy, ethics, and public policy, she's also a seasoned nonprofit leader, democracy advocate, tech ethicist distinguished author and mum, and she has an article at the Washington Post, Our Democracy is Menaced by Two Dragons. Here's how to slay them. Welcome to Background Briefing, Danielle.
2: Thank you so much, Ian, glad to to be here with you.
0: Well, and it's wonderful to talk to a dragon slayer because (laughs) (laughs) we really need it. And uh, every day uh, in reporting what's happening in the world and what's happening to our politics, I keep feeling like I'm delivering the daily dose of doom. But you right. you are delivering some really important hope here, are you not, given what's happened in the last several presidential elections where the pattern is emerging and it seems to be getting worse where presidents get elected through the Electoral College with a massive and growing deficit in the popular vote. And that is clearly dysfunctional when it comes to basic democracies, is it not?
2: Exactly. Yes, no, thank you Ian. I mean, it does sound as if you are focusing on so many major causes of anxiety and I know a lot of people out there are really feeling anxiety. For me, it's really important for us to figure not, you know, figure out not only how to protect ourselves or defend our democracy in the near term, but also how to do some renovation, um some redesign and improvement so that the danger actually lessens over time. So that's really the focus of what I've been writing about. And you've brought up the Electoral College. It is one of the weak spots in our system right now. It is out of balance. It was always supposed to give smaller states a little bit of sort of extra smidge of protection. But over the last century, that level of protection has really increased and larger states have really lost um, power, lost their voice in the Electoral College. The reason for this is because 100 years ago, Congress decided not to grow anymore, decided not to keep adding more representatives every decade. That is what has happened or had happened previously for the rest of the country, that every 10 years, Congress grew as the country grew. And that growth in Congress actually kept the Electoral College in balance. The reason for that is because the Electoral College is made up of a combination of the number of the members of the House of Representatives and senators. So with a fixed uh, size for the electoral college. Every time the country grows, somebody has to lose, you know, a seat in the electoral college. California, Texas, Florida, New York—they have to give up, um, you know, space there in order that some of the smaller states have space. And that has led to this position where there will be increasing frequency where the person who loses the popular vote could still win the presidency. And as you said, that is just not the basis for stable, legitimate democracy.
0: And the solution is?
2: The solution is to grow the size of Congress. My solution, my proposal um, cuts a little bit against the grain. There is a you know meaningful body of people in the country who think we should just abolish the electoral college and use the national popular vote instead to elect the president. But the truth of the matter is there's an equally significant body of people who are against that. And that body of people does, by and large, come from less populous states. And there's a reason for that. It's because the less populous states know that if we went to the national popular vote, well, then they just wouldn't get that much attention in elections. They wouldn't get that much attention from candidates any longer. So we do actually still need the Electoral College to sort of hold the whole structure of a union of states together, but we've got to get it back in balance. And the way to do that is to go ahead and let the Electoral College grow by the amount that it's lost over the last century. So that would mean taking our House of Representatives up from four hundred and thirty-five to five hundred and eighty-five. And that in turn would mean taking the Electoral College itself also up by about a hundred people.
0: And you don't think solutions like making Washington, DC a state and therefore giving the Democrats two more senators and then the same with Puerto Rico. I mean, there are small states in the Democratic fold, Delaware, where the current president comes from, and also Rhode Island, but most of the small states are on the Republican side, are they not?
2: Well, I mean, there are in both categories, honestly. And Mm -hmm. actually, if you increased the House and increased the Electoral College, it would not throw a partisan advantage one way or the other. So that is actually one of the things that makes this a feasible, a possible solutions pathway. It really, you know, it's, it, it wouldn't tip the balance, but it would actually get rid of that problem of the split between the popular vote and the electoral college vote. But you're really asking another important question. This is the question about how do we relate the work of renovating democracy, achieving a healthy system? How does that relate to partisan politics? And the truth of the matter is I actually think we have to pull those two ideas apart from each other. So democracies are stable. And they have a stable constitution when they have a supermajority of citizens, so two-thirds of citizens, supporting the constitutional structure. That means in order for us to get to a place with a healthy democracy, we actually have to do the work of building a supermajority for constitutional democracy. We're going to have to do some ideological bridge building and cross-ideological work. So there are partisan things that people can also pursue that are valuable to pursuing. I happen to think you know, having statehood for Puerto Rico, for example, is a good thing. Um, But on the other hand, for the constitutional work we have to do, for that we do have to achieve a supermajority, and that means actually putting aside some of the more partisan projects and finding those solutions that can generate that supermajority cross-ideological support. This is actually one of those solutions. It came out of the work of a commission that was cross-ideological and bridge-building.
0: So physically, though, can the House, the building itself, accommodate what, an extra over 100 people, right? Is that what you're suggesting?
2: Well, actually, and I misspoke before, I should have said 150. Um, So the idea is to go up immediately from 435 in the House to 585. There are actually two bills in Congress that propose this already. And yes, it's a beautiful and wonderful thing that existing capital could in fact accommodate a House of Representatives that had as many as 1,700 members. So we actually have a lot of room to grow, more than people realize.
0: Well, of course, every time you look at it on C-SPAN, the building's empty, right? (laughs) They don't all show up at once except for the joint sessions and the presidential uh, address to the nation. So again, this is encouraging to hear that there are solutions uh, to these vexing problems that... That uh, seem to get worse. Let's talk about the other one, which is seems even more intractable, and that is gerrymandering. You feel that you can slay two dragons with one stone, right?
2: Well, so this is the thing to slay the second dragon of gerrymandering. We would have to get even more ambitious with growing the House of Representatives. There is a solution to gerrymandering. Uh, it is very straightforwardly to transition to having congressional districts with at least three members representing each district. And then to use ranked choice voting or instant runoff for a selection of those members. So that's where you get to rank the candidates in your order of preference, your first choice, second choice, third choice and the like. And the lowest vote getters get knocked out. And then whoever voted for them has their votes reallocated to their second choice. And you do that until the top people get over the vote threshold for the election. If you use this kind of method, in any given district and you'll have two winners who come from the sort of majority constituency and then you'll have a third winner who comes from the minority constituency that could be a partisan minority. So here I live in Massachusetts, every one of our districts has a Democrat representing it. If we had three members per district, we'd have districts that had you know, two Democrats and one Republican, for instance, because about a third of the folks in Massachusetts do lean in a Republican direction. Alternatively, it would also, Permit, For example, if you have a community where there's a real sort of um, racial demographic that matters um, and you'd have, again, two reps that were probably elected by the majority constituency and another elected by the minority constituency, it's a way of giving voice and choice to all. Now, to get there, the simplest and straightforward way would be to triple the size of our current Congress. So doing that would literally make it impossible for people to gerrymander. It just would be too complicated to avoid um, having, you you wouldn't be able to to draw districts that avoided having the other side have some voice. So gerrymandering would go out the window, Um, but it would take moving up to those multi-member districts. And the easiest way of doing that would be to move to three members per congressional district.
0: And and how many congressional districts are we talking about? The 585 or the 435 currently?
2: The 435 currently, exactly. Mm-hmm. So it'd be a matter of tripling that 435. So you'd be headed up to, you know, 1,335. I think it is um, right. representatives.
0: Is it the top three candidates per district that win through ranked exactly. choice voting?
2: That's right. But the point is that um, you know because you're ranking, your vote only counts once. So it's not like you get to have your votes count for multiple candidates. So that's what makes it uh, have the result that you get a candidate who, you know, really represents the biggest bulk of voters. And then the next candidate, the next biggest bulk of voters. And then the third candidate, the third biggest bulk of voters.
0: So you don't do rank choice voting. Is that what you saying? No, you do. Um, but because when that's... I say
2: your your vote only counts once, So you rank your choices. Right. Okay? Your first choice, your second choice, your third choice. Right. But your vote only gets to count once. So if your first choice person is one of the strong candidates, then your other rankings never apply.
0: I see, I see. see.
2: But if your first choice person is at the bottom and they drop out, then your vote goes to your second choice person and then it just applies there. So your vote only ever applies to one candidate. I see. But which candidate applies to
0: depends on the ranking system. And given how polarized our politics are now, are you confident that this system of electing three Congress people to each district would bring in some variety, bring in some plurality, bring in independence, bring in, you know, in, in your state of Massachusetts, yep. which is fairly blue. Just let's start with your, your district itself. Mm-hmm. What do you think would happen? Who, who do you think you'd end up voting for here, or who would be on the ballot, and who would be the likely the three candidates to emerge?
2: So I think in most districts in Massachusetts, you would end up with where currently we have a Democrat representing the district, you would end up with two Democrats and one Republican. Um, Republicans are scattered across Massachusetts at about 30 percent, but they don't have any representation in the congressional delegation, for example, despite making up a meaningful portion of the population. Um, And this is true, conversely, in Texas as well. You'd see the same sort of effect in districts that are all red. Currently, you'd have two Republicans and you'd have a Democrat. One of the great benefits of this is that currently, when uh, the two parties caucus in Congress, you have some states that are just completely missing from a given caucus. So, you know, there's nobody from Massachusetts in the Republican caucus, for example. And then conversely, there's a number of states where you know, that are absent um, from the Democratic caucus. So that would no longer happen. Each party's caucus would have full geographical representation from the whole country.
0: And in terms of ranked choice voting, of course, I come from Australia where they've always had what they call preferential voting, which is the same system. But mm-hmm. it obviously works much, much better. And it's much more democratic in the sense that smaller parties have a bigger chance. And that's been a, a big problem yep. here. You know, you've got the no labels people now that are thinking of uh, actually that they're, they're getting on the ballots in Arizona and other states. Uh, and there's a great deal of fear amongst the Democrats that they will be spoilers. And we know Ralph Nader and all the history of Jill Stein, etc. So that the idea was, as always been with ranked choice voting, is to get to a point where a third party candidate is no longer a spoiler. So give us a sense of how that is going to play out with your scheme.
2: That's exactly right. I mean, you've just described another important aspect of ranked choice voting. It makes it possible for people to vote for third-party candidates, um, but then not to have that effect of splitting the vote for a major party candidate. So, if you voted for a Jill Stein first, say, but a Joe Biden second, and Stein was at the bottom of the rankings then you know she'd fall out and your vote would transfer over to Biden. Um so it permits people to fully express their views that's the sense in which ranked choice voting gives people more voice and more meaningful choice, Um, but it also still ensures that you end up with the winners being center of gravity candidates, um, the ones who can really build that biggest coalition um, and the like. So it's a really important dynamic. It does mean um, it would give us a chance to have more productive, substantive debate as a part of our elections. There would be more room for taking those third party candidates seriously, and their ideas uh, would have to be engaged by the, the major party candidates. I should also add, I misspoke about what size Congress would be if we tripled it. It would be, of course, 1,305. So I want to just clarify that.
0: Okay. But you'd have more constituent service, wouldn't you, with three Congress people?
2: You would. Exactly. You'd have more constituent service. Um, You would also uh, really be able to have an impact on the information ecosystem in the district, Because now you would have three people who not just were serving their constituents, but also were working to spread information about what Congress was doing, information about what the key issues are and things like that. As I'm sure you know, we really are suffering from news deserts all over the country at this point in time. And actually increasing the number of members of Congress would have another effect on starting to rebuild those markets of local information, local news.
0: So let's talk in the few, last few minutes here, Danielle, about where these your proposals are, where they're heading, who's behind them, and how we can get them enacted.
2: Well, thank you for that important question. I always like to say, you know, hope is good, but you need hope connected to action if you want to change realities. And and that's definitely what I'm talking about here. I mentioned two bills in Congress for increasing the size of the House, Those are Rep. Kasten and Rep. Blumenauer both have bills. There's another bill called the Fair Representation Act, which focuses on that use of multi-member districts and ranked choice voting. Um, So that's another element that's in the works. But a really important final piece is we have to give our politicians the space to be problem solvers. Right now that's challenging because of the dynamics of polarization between the two parties. There's a sense in which what we really need in order to get these changes is to liberate our politicians and we have to liberate them in particular from how party primaries operate. So I'm also an advocate for the idea that we we need to get rid of party primaries at the state level and replace those by what are called all-comer preliminaries. That's where in that first moment where you have a primary, normally you have one ballot for all candidates from all parties and then you take a certain number of finalists forward. We already have this in Louisiana, California, and Washington, where they take two finalists forward from that all-comers preliminary, and Alaska has it, and they take four finalists forward in the all-comers, um, from the all-comers preliminary to the final round. Nevada just passed um, a ballot proposition to do this with five finalists. This method means that candidates are at both that preliminary moment and the final general moment campaigning to the whole electorate they have to build support you know across everybody not just appeal to the most extreme partisan base this orients them it gives them incentives towards doing problem solving that the sort of majority of people are going to find appealing and interesting and depolarizes the nature of our
0: politics and how how do you organize it it's now a sort of a patchwork and and it's even been a competition among states to, to be the first primary now, of course, you have the Democrats now going, uh, sort of abandoning Iowa and New Hampshire, starting out in South Carolina. So how would this system work in terms of making that less of an issue, or at least the criticism of New Hampshire and Iowa being first in the nation for the longest time has has been fairly valid in as much as these are small, largely white rural states that don't represent the diversity in America.
2: So that's a great and really important question that you're asking about presidential primaries. I should have said, so the preliminary um, method that I'm describing is used in the states that I mentioned for federal elections for Congress and Senate, but not for the presidency, actually. So it's used for state offices and then federal offices minus the presidency. So right now there's no proposal on the table to change the structure for presidential primaries. But the idea is if we have a different mechanism for electing members of Congress and members of the Senate, we'll get a more functional legislature, we'll get a more functional House of Representatives and Senate in combination. There's evidence to support this. If you look at the uh, Biden debt ceiling deal And if you look at the states that use this method, um, something around 90% of Republicans in those states um, voted to support the debt ceiling deal. In other states that are using party primaries, the number of Republicans who voted in support was more in the 60% range. Um so the point is that if you have a congress where people are incentivized to do work for the general electorate as opposed to for their sort of small partisan activist base you get a better problem-solving congress and then if you have a better problem-solving congress then you can actually have a healthier dynamic at the presidential level too because you're no longer in a situation where it's sort of like all power is being concentrated in the presidency because congress
0: is so dysfunctional so you mentioned uh, that there's a, a couple of bills. The congressman from uh, Oregon was one, and I, the other one was who? Uh,
2: exactly, Representative Casten from Illinois.
0: Uh huh. And what kind of response have these bills got from their colleagues? Because obviously, uh, this is a big change. You know, you're gonna have, <laughs> you're gonna have two more Congress people in your district from now on, right? How are they reacting to that notion?
2: So just to clarify, so Rep Blumenhauer and Rep Kasten have proposed the larger house um, on the order of about 585 members. Um, It's Rep Beyer from Virginia with the Fair Representation Act who has proposed multi-member districts for Congress. So um, in both cases, they have some support from other colleagues. I think in both cases, they are really socializing the ideas. The House leadership is not supportive at this point in time. So it's definitely the very beginning of our process of trying to achieve these reforms. I like to remind people, though, that we've got a a deadline, you know, because the census and reapportionment in Congress happens every 10 years. So districts will be reapportioned again in 2030. The country is growing. Because the country is growing, when we do that reapportionment in 2030, it will make the electoral college problem even worse. So the job is to get these ideas socialized and build momentum for them so that we could get them through by, call it, 2028, so that they are available for use in 2030 when we have to reapportion Congress again.
0: But it looks like the 585 idea would happen first, right? Which is the one that's the most likely to, to work? I think the
2: 585 idea is the one that is likely to happen first. Right. So I do think that the multi-member tripling of the size of the house idea is, you know, a slower timetable in all likelihood. The exception would be that if the American people suddenly looked up and said, "Oh my gosh, you know, there's a solution to gerrymandering and it's not that complicated. Right. <laughs> and we could actually just get this done." You know, you never know. Sometimes the American people really does wake up and decide there's something it really wants. And then things happen very fast when that's the case.
0: Well, it's not just a solution to gerrymandering. It's also a solution to the Electoral College, right? Exactly. It's a double double solution. It's a one-two punch.
2: That's right. Slaying two dragons with one stone.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I appreciate you joining us here today, Danielle.
2: Thank you. Thanks for your great questions. I appreciate it.